You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Your Brain on Facts back catalog. I'm your host, Moxie Labouche. A little bit of context before the episode begins. For these early episodes, I was still learning to edit the audio. Some of them sound bad because I didn't edit enough, and then some sound worse because I edited too much. Please take the audio quality with a grain of salt and understand that it was growing pains. And now, our feature presentation. A content advisory before we begin. This episode contains a homophobic slur in its original context. The history of the human being is divided into two major epochs, the dividing line between them being the first written record. If you were asked to name the greatest advance in mankind's ability to record its history, you might well say that came in 1493 when Johannes Gutenberg of Germany created a printing press with movable type. Movable type meant that each letter was on its own block and they could be arranged as needed to form any text. Prior to this, an entire page of text had to be carved from a single block of wood, like one enormous stamp. Consider the time it would take to carve a single block, then multiply that by the number of pages in even the shortest book. Any printing press was an improvement over hand-lettered manuscripts, but the Gutenberg Press could print over 200 pages per minute and gave the world what would be called the Gutenberg 42-line Bible. Books and the ideas they contained were no longer the exclusive purview of the wealthy. Greater access to ideas and information was a causative force behind such things as the Renaissance, the Protestant Reformation, and the Industrial Revolution. But did you know the Far East was printing books with movable type nearly eight decades before the first Gutenberg Bible was found? My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. A printing press with movable metal type was developed in Korea during the Goryeo dynasty, which ran from 918 to 1392, in a desperate attempt to preserve religious texts in the face of Mongol invasions. A single copy of a single volume of one book remains. It is called Jikji, which is the abbreviated title of a Korean Buddhist anthology whose title can be translated to Anthology of Great Buddhist Priests' Zen Teachings. The Jikji is a collection of excerpts from the teachings of the most revered Buddhist monks throughout successive generations, collated by a monk named Gyobyan. It was published in two volumes in 1372, though the first volume has been lost. Further weakening the Gutenberg was first position, the Korean press wasn't even technically the first press with movable type. The earliest known non-metallic movable type was developed in China in the 10th century. That press used clay blocks, which proved to be too fragile, though it is thought to have directly influenced the Korean design. 
There is also evidence that Gutenberg's press may not have been an example of simultaneous invention. A record in the Swiss Museum of Paper indicates a papal delegation to Gorio brought printing technology back to Europe. Korea's claim to origination carries some serious bona fides in the form of a 2001 addition to the Memory of the World program by UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Three years later, the Jikchi Memory of the World Prize was created, which recognizes institutions that have contributed to the preservation and accessibility of documentary heritage, the safeguard against collective amnesia, neglect, the ravages of time and climate conditions, and willful and deliberate destruction. If the listener would like to see the Jikchi in person, they may want to bone up on their French. Rather than reposing rightfully in Korea, the Jikchi has been kept in La Bibliothèque Nationale de France in Paris. It was acquired under unclear circumstances by the first French consul to Korea and passed to the Bibliothèque upon his death. The consensus in Korea is, unsurprisingly, that it should be returned to them, that cultural artifacts belong in their country of origin. La Bibliothèque adamantly refuses arguing that the Jikji is part of humanity's common heritage and therefore doesn't belong to anyone. That raises the question, at least in this reporter's mind, if it belongs to everyone and therefore no one, what would it matter if they gave it back? On a brighter note, a wood-carving print of Jikji containing the complete two volumes is currently kept in the National Library of Korea. Sometimes a person we remember as the first to do something wasn't preempted by someone else. They merely failed to complete the thing they're credited with. Such is the case with Ferdinand Magellan, the name long attached to the first circumnavigation of the Earth. Magellan certainly intended to sail around the globe when he set sail from Spain in September 1519. Of the five ships that began the voyage, only three made it as far as the Pacific Ocean. One was turned back by mutineers. Another was abandoned as it sailed through what is now known as the Strait of Magellan. It had taken a month to reach the Pacific Ocean, and the crew of that ship had given up hope of a successful outcome. The three remaining ships floated in the Pacific Ocean for nearly three months, unable to resupply until they landed in Guam. The crew was near starvation, but with so much distance behind them, it looked like they were going to succeed in reaching the Spice Islands, so they pressed on. In the end, only one ship would return to Spain, with a scant 18 of the original 260 crewmen. Magellan himself was among the dead, having been killed when the Spaniards were defeated by natives in the Battle of Mactan in the Philippines in April 1521. There are two schools of thought as to who should be credited with the first circumnavigation in Magellan's absence. One side argues that distinction should go to Magellan's personal slave, Enrique of Malacca. Magellan had seized Enrique during a siege on a 1511 voyage to the East Indies, and the Malay man later served as the expedition's interpreter in the Pacific Islands. Shortly after Magellan's death, Enrique abandoned the expedition and disappeared. By then, he was only a few hundred miles short of his origin in Malacca. If he continued on to his homeland, as many speculate he would, Enrique would have earned the credit of being the first person to circumnavigate the globe, completing not Magellan's journey, but his own. Some historians argue that Magellan's mission was completed by the handful of sailors who made it back to Spain under the command of Juan Sebastian Elcano. Elcano became captain of the ship Victoria after Magellan and two subsequent captains died, guiding her to the port 
of San Lucar some three years after they had set out. Elcano was awarded an annual pension and a coat of arms by Charles I of Spain, which featured a globe with the motto Primus Circumdedisti Ni, in Latin, You Went Around Me First, which sounds a bit more like a Boy Scout badge than a prestigious honor. Another name inexorably connected to pioneering accomplishments in long-distance travel is Charles Lindbergh. Lucky Lindy became a media sensation in 1927, when, at age 25, he made a non-stop flight from Long Island, New York, to Paris, France. He covered the 3,600 statute miles, or 5,800 kilometers, alone in the single-engine Spirit of St. Louis in what was lauded to be the first non-stop flight between North America and Europe. While he retains credit for managing the flight alone, to have been the first to fly across the ocean, Lindbergh would have had to pull those 33.5 hours before 1919. That was the year John Alcock and Arthur Brown flew a modified World War I bomber from Newfoundland, Canada to Connemara, Ireland. They also carried a small amount of mail on the flight, making it simultaneously the first transatlantic airmail flight. Englishman John Alcock had been fascinated by aviation as a teenager and was a military pilot during World War I, taken prisoner in Turkey after the engines of his Handley Page bomber failed over the Gulf of Syros. Scottish-born to American parents and raised in England, Arthur Brown was an engineer before the war. He also spent time as a POW after being shot down in Germany. In April 1913, the Daily Mail newspaper offered a prize of £10,000, around $340,000 today, to the aviator who shall first cross the Atlantic in an aeroplane from any point in the United States, Canada, or Newfoundland to any point in Great Britain or Ireland in 72 continuous hours. Understandably, the contest was suspended with the outbreak of war in 1914, but reopened after armistice was declared in 1918. During his imprisonment, Alcock fixated on the idea of flying the Atlantic one day. After the war, he approached the Vickers Engineering and Aviation Firm, who were converting a bomber for the long flight, replacing the bomb racks with extra petrol tanks, where Alcock's enthusiasm impressed them so much that he was appointed as their pilot. When an unemployed Brown approached Vickers looking for a position, his knowledge of long-distance navigation convinced them to take him on as Alcock's navigator. Taking off on July 14, 1919, the two pilots found themselves in for a flight that was difficult and treacherous, to put it mildly. The overloaded aircraft had difficulty taking off and only barely missed the tops of trees. The wind-driven electrical generator failed, depriving them of radio contact, their intercom, and heat. An exhaust pipe burst shortly afterward, causing a frightening amount of noise that made conversation impossible. They had to fly through thick fog, which should only be undertaken with gyroscopic instruments, which they did not have. Alcock twice lost control of the aircraft and nearly hit the sea after a spiral dive. Their electric heating suits had also failed, making them very cold in the open cockpit. But their coffee was laced with whiskey, because at that point, why not? Brown had to climb out on the wings and knock accumulated ice from the carburetors, even while Alcock flew dangerously low in hopes of preventing the engines from freezing over. Sixteen hours after taking off, the two of them landed in Ireland. The situation did not improve as locals tried to wave them to a landing strip, but the two men crashed into a bog. This was not the result of error or ineptitude. Brown had removed the front wheel to reduce weight, and they couldn't risk trying to land on a runway. 
A week after the historic flight, the aviators were awarded the honor of Knight Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire by King George V. This reporter's husband would like the listener to know that the first transatlantic flight was actually accomplished by an albatross, which, rest assured, earned him an annoyed stare. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Scientists and inventors rarely create something from absolutely nothing. They build on the work done by others. Sometimes this means improving or repurposing an existing technology. Sometimes it's a little closer to taking someone else's work and putting your name on it. When it comes to the telephone, the latter proved to be true for Italian immigrant Antonio Meucci. Meucci studied the principles of electromagnetic voice transmission for many years. In 1856, he installed a telephone-like device within his house to connect his basement workshop to his second floor in order to communicate with his wife, who was ill at the time. In 1871, he filed a patent caveat, a sort of legal dibs used at the time to signify a person's intent to file a full patent, describing his sound telegraph. Unfortunately for Meucci, the caveat was not properly written and left out key information. It detailed the need to insulate the parts, and even the user, without explaining that sound is converted to variable electric conduction in the wire. Other sections were so vague that it was unclear that he had created something new at all. It was omissions such as these that allowed Alexander Graham Bell to file his patent for the telephone in 1876. It is thought that Meucci's difficult personal finances prevented him from paying the fee for a full application but he applied for and was granted four patents in the 1870s, so we may never know the reason. Meucci had tried to move forward with the Sound Telegraph, presenting the plans and the patent caveat to American District Telegraph Company of New York, asking for permission to test his apparatus on the company's telegraph lines. Two years would pass without a response from the company. When Meucci asked for his documents back, he was allegedly told they had been lost. 
In 1887, the Bell Telephone Company filed suit against various telephone companies and Meucci for patent infringement in court battles that lasted for years. The evidence Meucci produced to substantiate his claim was disregarded. Sadly, he would not live to see vindication, dying in 1889. Bell's name is often said in the same breath as 19th century American inventor emeritus Thomas Edison credited with giving the world the incandescent light bulb. As mentioned before, few inventions are the work of one person, and in truth Edison had an entire laboratory of men testing potential filament materials and bulb constructions. Edison's team did make significant improvements to the light bulb, not only in the filament, but with a higher vacuum than others had been able to achieve, and a high resistance that made power distribution from a centralized source economically viable. There had been numerous ancestors to the light bulb before Edison's 1880 patent, some of which had patents of their own. As early as 1802, Sir Humphrey Davy demonstrated the incandescence of a strip of platinum. As a filament, it did not glow bright enough or last long enough, but precedent had been set. In 1838, Belgian lithographer Marcelin Jobard invented an incandescent light bulb with a vacuum atmosphere using a carbon filament. Five years later, British scientist Warren Delarue enclosed a coiled platinum filament in a vacuum tube. The concept was that the high melting point of platinum would allow it to operate at high temperatures and that the evacuated chamber would contain few gas molecules to react with the platinum, improving its longevity. Although it worked, the cost of platinum made it impractical for commercial use. In 1841, Frederick de Molien of England was granted the first patent for an incandescent lamp with a design using platinum wires contained within a vacuum bulb. Another Molien design used carbon. In 1845, American John W. Starr acquired a patent for his incandescent light bulb involving the use of carbon filaments. However, he died shortly after obtaining the patent and his invention was never produced commercially. Some of Edison's R&D came in the form of buying the patent rights of other inventors, such as Canadians Henry Woodward and Matthew Evans, whose lamp consisted of carbon rods mounted in a nitrogen-filled glass cylinder. Another name that has been given the credit of a group effort and unwarranted first status is Alan Turing. Turing is credited with cracking the Enigma Code, the until then utterly unbreakable German code system. This required the creation of the massive bomb machine, a 6 by 7 foot aggregation of gears, rotors, and 12 miles worth of wiring capable of working to the equivalent of 36 Enigma machines. As the bomb worked its way through every permutation of rotor settings, electrical current would either flow or not flow through the system, which was checked by the bomb's comparator unit. Using this method, it was possible to check for a logical contradiction, ruling out particular rotor settings. If there was no contradiction, the machine would stop and the rotor setting could be noted down. These could then be tested by hand on a Type-X machine modified to work like Enigma. Meanwhile, the bomb could be started again, looking for the next possible solution until the code had been broken. It's been estimated this single machine shortened the war by two to four years. Turing and his team expanded on earlier work done by Polish mathematicians. British intelligence focused on employing linguists to try to decipher the German codes. The Polish realized they really needed mathematicians capable of winnowing out patterns. Thus, they put together a team of their best, whose names I cannot even begin to attempt to pronounce. 
Working together, the three developed electromechanical computers they called bombas, meaning bomb, owing to the ticking sound they made while in operation, which simulated the guts of an Enigma machine. Turing would eventually meet with this Polish team, and his now famous bomb was a scaled-up version of the Polish bombas, right down to the name. Bonus fact, a leap forward in deciphering Enigma codes came from a pedestrian place, a weather report. The Nazis issued a weather report every morning encrypted by the Enigma code, a broadcast that was done in the same format daily, which the British could then crack and reveal the Enigma settings used for that day. Eventually, the Germans switched to a variety of different Enigma machines, such as a four- or five-rotor machine, as well as double-encrypting messages, but the British codebreakers caught up with them. The British themselves took the concept of the Enigma cipher and improved upon it in such a way that the Germans thought it was impossible to crack, as it was even more sophisticated than Enigma itself. After Enigma, the second thing people know about Alan Turing is that he was homosexual. As is NBA center Jason Collins, the first professional basketball player to come out as gay in 2013. In 2015, David Denson followed suit and became what the press called the first openly gay active player on a team affiliated with Major League Baseball. The problem with that title is that Los Angeles Dodgers outfielder Glenn Burke beat them both to the punch by nearly four decades. Talent scouts thought Burke had the potential to be the Willie Mays of his generation. While coaches were impressed by his talent, they were not impressed by his openness about his sexual orientation. Burke didn't suppress his identity, but sports writers refused to make any mention of it. They wouldn't put that in the article. Coach Tommy Lasorda, known to this reporter's generation mostly as the guy from the Slim Fast commercials, and Team VP Al Campanis had the temerity to offer Burke $75,000 to marry a woman. In an irony that would seem farcical if it wasn't so tragic, Lasorda's son, Tom Jr., died from AIDS-related disease in 1991. To this day, Lasorda Sr. refuses to acknowledge his son's homosexuality. After only two years with the Dodgers, Burke was traded to the Oakland A's, where manager Billy Martin introduced him to his new teammates by saying dismissively, this is Glenn Burke and he's a faggot. A little more than a year later, Burke left baseball behind permanently. Mentioning that Burke came before Collins and Denson is not intended in any way to detract from the risk that any of these men took in coming out. Professional sports is a temple for the, quote, male ideal. Management, fellow players, and fans alike have a well-documented history of hostility toward those they even suspect being homosexual. Conditions have improved, but we still have a long way to go toward acceptance. While Burke is often denied recognition for being the first gay professional athlete, he is credited with having popularized the hi-fi, which, at the risk of editorializing, is burying the lead if there ever was one. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Each generation of textbooks written from other textbooks solidifies a single version of events that we knew to be true. Luckily, the wonders of the information age have helped us discover the true stories behind inventions, accomplishments, and people. It can be hard to supplant the version of history that we learned in school when new facts come along. If we were able to learn that Leif Erikson beat Christopher Columbus to the New World by 500 years, we'll be able to learn these new things too. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.
The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.